0: How many of you know what yesterday was? Yesterday, no, yes, it was Saturday, yes, I'm not going to point out people that know. That's the whole point of me having control here, right? I asked the question. Yesterday was Guy Fawkes Day, yeah! Guy, He's like, who in the world is Guy Fawkes, All right, Guy Fawkes in England, Guy Fawkes Day in England is the equivalent of July 4th in this country. In the sense, it's the day when the whole country stops and celebrates their nation. And you say, well, what does Guy Fawkes have to do? with it? Well, Guy Fawkes was a leader of a political movement that sought to blow up Parliament. So on Guy Fawkes Day, everyone gathers together for picnics, they have barbecues, they have games and fun, they have fireworks, and then to top it all off, at the end of the day, they build this huge bonfire, and they burn Guy Fawkes on the bonfire. Woohoo! yeah! Let's all together just enjoy all that, all right? Now, outside of England, it's like, okay, I've never heard of it, and I really don't care about it. Um, but it is a day that is significant, at least in that country. Um, in our country, there are other days that uh, people will remember. Um, D-Day. We could probably go down quite a list here, but you remember the day that man set foot on the moon? Anyone here remember that? I don't, just so you know that. But I've read about it, but I know it was a significant day. Um, Do you remember the day the walls came down in Berlin, signifying the end of communist oppression in Europe? You remember that day? Leonid, do you remember that day? I'm not asking for the specific day, but I mean, you know, you remember the event, right? Because it had a rippling effects in the area that you lived, right? I mean, right? Absolutely, uh, a significant day in the history of the world was was that day, and some of us watched it on TV. Um, do you remember the day that Shuttle Challenger exploded, killing uh, was it eight um, astronauts that were there? And I think the significant thing about that was that there was a a female teacher that was on that too, right? And I remember that I was a freshman or sophomore in college, and uh, this is back in the day without flat screen TVs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I literally had to go off campus and find a subway uh, sandwich place that had a TV so I could watch this thing. Um, September 11th, of course, big, significant day. And then since then, there's been, like, tsunamis and earthquakes and, you, just, you know, it's almost like there's so many things like that now, it's like they're, they're just not as impactful, uh, maybe, as they should be to what we're doing. But they are certainly significant days. Now, I, I share all that to share this, that as we go through church history, as we go through the, the pages of God's Word, there are, there are some significant days. And our text today, believe it or not, is a hugely significant day um, in the the whole process of God working with his people. It is a a shift, um, a transition of sorts from one administration established and chosen by God to another. It is this shift from biblical Judaism to the new way of Christianity. There's a significant shift. I'm calling it a shifting of allegiances, in particular from John the Baptist who is pointing at Jesus as being the Lamb of God. And you say, well, what's significant about that? The significance about that is this, that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And John, as his last purpose as a prophet, is speaking to the people in front of him saying, behold, the Lamb of God. And even as we read in this passage, he actually encourages two of his disciples to go and to seek out this one who he's pointing out as the Lamb of God. He is in essence saying, I have some followers, but these followers now need to go and follow the Messiah. See, there's a shift going on here. There's the old way, there's the Old Testament order of things, and there's this new kind of, This uh, birthing of this new order, which we call New Testament Christianity, that is transitioning here, just with this one statement in this one text. But we often just kind of blow by it. This is a significant thing because although this is New Testament, it is still Old Testament era as far as function is concerned. With John the Baptist, you with me there? He's an Old Testament prophet functioning in a New Testament context. Why? Because he's transitioning. God is using him to prepare the way for the king. So there's a the shifting of allegiance. Now, the more I, I get into the Gospel of John, the more I appreciate the Apostle John's care as he is telling the story. And I, I, I notice that here, in particularly because he is being very, very careful as he's telling the story to explain himself. Did you notice the parenthetical statements that are in this passage? I mean, nothing profound, right? What is it? Rabbi, which means what? Teacher. Well, in case you didn't know what rabbi meant, I'm telling you, it means teacher. In case you didn't know what Messiah means, it means the Christ. Or actually, it's the other way around, isn't it? Is that right? Which means teacher, blah, 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 blah. No, it's Messiah, which means Christ, yeah. And then, of course, you have Cephas, which means Peter. The whole point there is he's saying, I'm not just going to say it and just kind of move on. The point for John writing this gospel is what? Not that you're left scratching your head wondering what do you say. The whole point is that you understand it. The whole point is that he explains what is there for an audience that is interested in what took place in the life of Christ, in particular during the time that John is writing this particular uh, information for his readers. Now, friends, this is all part of our strategy. This is a part of a divine strategy we have in our witness. We, we need to be ready to communicate verbally and then to explain what we're communicating so that those to whom we speak can understand. Now, remember this from a couple of weeks ago? Principles for effective witness. It's not about me. Does anyone not get that one yet? It's not about you. Secondly... It is about verbally professing Christ. In other words, opening your mouth, sharing the gospel, speaking it so that people can hear it and understand it, and pointing to Christ. The third thing is we trust God for the solution. We don't manipulate people to make a decision for Christ. We don't coerce conversion. You don't go into a town you know, with a bunch of soldiers and say, you know, either, either you're going to die or you're going to become a Christian. That's not how biblical evangelism takes place at all. We leave the results up to God. It is a personal transaction that takes place um, between us and God. But all this reminds me of a very, very familiar passage of Scripture relating to our witness, and that is 1 Peter 3.15. Turn there if you would, please. Uh, You know it. You've heard it before, but it's important for us to turn there and to pay attention to what it says as we're thinking through the argument that John has for us this morning. Uh, Peter there says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I think the last part of that verse is a great place to begin, right? Our witness should be fashioned, shaped with gentleness and respect. So any answer I give then has that as a backdrop, has that as a, as a place setting, so to speak. Um, but always being prepared, always being ready to make that defense. And don't think of that defense as, you know, as like you know, being defensive or being harsh. It's just simply being able to argue or to present the facts of the gospel and to share the truth of the gospel with that person who is there that you're talking to. So as we look at our text today, um, we continue then this theme that we've just looked at here, but it's also a theme of being a faithful witness this is what God is calling us to be, not only as people, but as a church, to be a faithful witness of being ready and of pointing others to the significance of the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 35 through 42 then, the Apostle Paul gives us, this is what I'm calling wise counsel for faithful witnessing, and I'm unpacking it with three statements, okay? Just trying to unpack this in three ways to be helpful for us. And I really hope that our time today is going to be practical um, and it's going to challenge us in being witnesses, but being faithful witnesses. And hopefully we'll answer some, some questions that you may have about how do you go about this and how do you do this. And um, let's just do something, though. I know we, already, we read the text once, but let's read it now afresh. But I want, I want, I want us to read it this time understanding that the first part of this text is talking about two disciples. The last part, verse 40 and following, is talking about one disciple in particular. You'll catch that as we go along. Verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, Why are you, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. All right, You can maybe just draw a little line there. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's just pray right now. Lord, as we jump into this narrative section of the Gospel of John, Lord, we have already been hit by truths that you want to teach us, and Lord, today, once again, you are uh, going to be challenging us, Lord, with the, the need to faithfully represent you, to be uh, witnesses of the Gospel, Lord, that that uh, you have uh, demonstrated, that you have accomplished on the cross for us, and Lord, as we, as we uh, gather today, Lord, give us hearts that are willing to see and and, and eyes that are willing to, to look and to understand what it is, Lord, that you're revealing in your truth. And allow me simply to be your messenger, accomplish your will, Lord, through me and in our hearts. And Lord, may we as individuals be conformed to, uh, to your son, Jesus Christ, in such a way that we are faithfully able and willing and desiring to share the truth. But Lord, also as a church, that we would see this mantle of responsibility, Lord, to be faithful witnesses in what we are doing and Lord, I just believe that you are challenging us, Lord, that you're setting the gauntlet out for us, that you're pushing us in this arena of being a witness for your glory, and Lord, you're giving us tools, so Lord, help us today to grasp them and then know to use them for your glory. We ask in your name, amen. Now, these two disciples, we know from this passage, one of those disciples is Andrew. Um, I believe the other disciple is John the Apostle himself, simply by virtue of the fact that he is writing this gospel and in this gospel he doesn't make references to himself he identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved or that disciple and here is a place where this disciple is not mentioned but certainly is is giving weight to the evidence and the activity that is taking place and if it was another disciple why wouldn't he mention him it seems his pattern to do so is simply to kind of smooth it out and just talk about another disciple so I do think that it's, it's John. Now that helps us as we jump into this because then John is eyewitness to what is taking place here. John ultimately then is with Jesus in that evening time in his home. So John is writing about stuff that he is experiencing himself. Okay. Now, the three statements I want you to, uh, that we're going to focus on here today are, are these. You can write them down if you want to just jot them down to kind of, let you let us know where, where things are going. First of all, in order for us to be faithful witnesses, we must learn to ask the right question. Learn to ask the right question. So I'm giving you the headings here if you're taking notes. Uh, learn to ask the right question. Secondly, we must carefully assess the right approach. Carefully assess the right approach. And finally, we must patiently accept the divine process carefully accept the divine process so let's look at this first this first one in our witness we must learn to ask the right question now what kinda questions are we supposed to ask when it comes to sharing the gospel well if you've ever been a part of some kind of a training for evangelism you probably learned what are called two diagnostic questions Um, Evangelism Explosion. Anyone here ever gone through Evangelism Explosion? Okay, no. In that training for evangelism, there's two two diagnostic questions. You'll, You'll recognize them, sure. Here's the first one. Have you reached the point in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die tonight, that you would go to heaven? Now, the diagnostic question is simply saying, here's a question that is going to really push a person to give a response. Either yes, I'm prepared. No, I'm not. Yes, I'm confident, I'm, I'm, I'm certain, no, I'm not. Okay, it's helpful as a way to kind of further discover where this person's at. The second one is usually given after that. If you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, how would you answer? And based on that answer, you kind of have a gauge as to what the person's basis is of their understanding of their, of, of their conversion or their status with, with Christ. Okay, so those two diagnostic questions are helpful questions. Um, they can be somewhat static if they're just kind of thrown out there and you know, it's kind of, kind of cold and not connected with anything else, but they're certainly helpful to diagnose what's going on in the heart. As we, as we come to this passage, there is another question, one that is penetrating and revealing, and it's one that Jesus uses. I want you to notice again as we go into this passage... Um, Look at verse 37 and following. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? What are you seeking? There's the question. Uh, We could just so easily blow by this, but this is a really, really important question. And I think it's a question that zeroes in on the motive of the heart and also is what I'm calling a check valve for our eagerness to see people come to faith in Christ. So let's take the first part of that. Uh, This question reveals the motive of the heart. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to Jews. Two guys that are Jews. What would be the motive of their heart? Why would they be seeking the Messiah? What would be part of their ideological... um, philosophical, political, spiritual makeup. One of the things is that they certainly would be desiring with the coming of the Messiah uh, for some escape from the bondage of Rome. That's one of the things that the disciples struggled with, wasn't it? They struggled with, is this Messiah coming to wipe out Rome so that we can now establish this kingdom, all right? Um, It could be this idea of, well, if the Messiah is here and, and, you know, and we're going to be hanging around with him, there certainly is going to be some benefits to us. There's going to be financial blessing maybe. Um, there's going to be material blessing. There's going to be prestige. There's going to be a connection. And, you know, it's interesting in the story of Jesus and the disciples how these themes kind of kick in. Remember when Jesus is feeding the 5,000? I mean, if Jesus can feed the 5,000 just with a couple of, you know, loaves and some fish... We got it made, you know, prime rib tomorrow, you know, pizza the next day. They understood what pizza was. Remember, David came down to his brothers, and he brought bread and cheese. Just put it all together, all right? They under- it, was, it was there, all right? It didn't start in Italy, okay? It was all back there, okay? All right, but you'll think on that for a while. Suddenly, it'll hit you, okay? The, the final thing here is uh, is security, and then also peace, all right? Just some things that, 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 that the Jews, as they are hearing about the Messiah, may be looking for. Now, let's take these and let's kind of bring these into a modern-day setting and flesh them out a little bit. Um, some faulty reasons why people might seek God. To escape the hardship that they are facing. We talk about foxhole experiences, right? What does that describe? It describes a person who is in a really, really bad situation. There doesn't seem to be any way out. If they poke their head up, it could mean immediate death or danger. And so in, in that particular moment, they get down on their knees and say, God, if you can just get me out of this mess, then, right? The last resort, yeah. Now, it's not just something that happens on the battlefield. This happens when someone hears the news that they're diagnosed with a certain disease. Or maybe they've been struggling with a disease and it's hard, okay? It's the kind of thing that maybe if if there's trouble in the family, um, they kind of go to God and say, God, I just have no idea what to do. I don't know how to handle this. I just want escape. It could be financial turmoil. It could be failure on the job, losing a job. It could be danger. It could be a number of different things that put a person in that particular place. And you can understand why they're feeling what they're feeling, Okay? That's, it's, a, it's a faulty reason um, for us to say, okay, that's fine, good. Uh, and I'll get to that in just a minute, okay? But it's that kind of foxhole experience. It's this escaping the hardships that they're facing. Did, did Christ ever say that we would escape the hardships that we face in this world? Absolutely not, okay? But they're real, okay? So don't just kind of brush it aside completely. Let's recognize that they are real and people struggle and and many of you have gone through these things. Okay? Secondly, uh, to gain promise of wealth or prestige or power. Isn't it possible that someone who is pursuing Christ or is thinking about maybe you know, Christianity or, or coming to faith in Christ is, is saying, well, if, if I do that, then maybe God will provide for me that job I've been looking for. Or maybe he will help my family to not be as, You know, in competition so much. Or maybe, you know, my financial situation will get better. Or um, maybe I'll be successful in life. This is what we call the prosperity gospel. Okay? It's a faulty idea when it's taken out to its nth degree. Peace in life. Anyone you know that's looking for peace in life? I mean, we all want peace in some sort, right? And people want peace because they're troubled with guilt of their consciences are condemning them. Maybe they're afraid that God will not accept them. Um, They fear that they're not good enough or they fear that they haven't uh, haven't been good enough to measure up to God. See, these may be either idols of the heart or they may be longings of our desperation. But see, here's the problem. The problem is what these people need. Everyone I've mentioned here is Christ. They don't need escape. They don't need, you know, to be um to, to, to feel some prestige or wealth or something like that that comes uh, as you know as making a decision for Christ, or that somehow God's going to be their genie. They need Christ. The person who's looking for peace doesn't just simply need for the peace or for the, the chaos to stop. They need Christ. Now here's the point. When when someone embraces Christ for who he is, not just because there's a benefit. Christ satisfies. Christ is all sufficient. The end result of that, the fruit of that may be and often is escape, relief, blessing. How many of you here are believers today and you're blessed? Amen. Amen. It's not because of anything you did. It's all because of what he did, right? And peace is something that comes through the cross. And so what what we ought to be pursuing here with this question is an understanding of what are the motives of this person's heart? What are they really seeking? And we need to direct them and point them not to their escape or to their prestige or status or even to the... Peace that they're longing for, but direct them to the one who provides complete and total satisfaction through his justification, which was taken place on the cross, which is applied to those who faithfully trust in him and are regenerated. And the fruit of all that are all the things that we're talking about here. Okay? And it's just, if we get this wrong, then we promise escape, we promise blessing, we promise. Um, Peace and other things and we can bypass the cross now the second part of this I think is also important because not only does this question reveal the motive of the heart it also is a check valve to our eagerness to see results if you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone what is your goal I mean just be honest what's your goal you want to see that person what? Come to faith in Christ, right? I mean, that's it's natural. And it's something for us to say, well, I want them to get to the place where they're saying yes, and they're maybe praying a prayer, or they're saying, I want to be a believer. But the question is, at what cost? At what cost are you willing to go down this line and have this person affirm something that may not truly be faith in Christ. This question is a check valve to our eagerness to see people come to faith in Christ. And sometimes with our eagerness, we will be willing to accept or be soft for something that is insufficient or an answer that affirms something that is insufficient when it really isn't sufficient at all. We're tempted because we want to see people saved, you want to see conversion take place and they might say, you know, I was out and I looked up in the sky and there was a cloud and it was in the shape of my heart and so I want Jesus. And you're like, well, wait a second I know you want Jesus but there's more to it than that. Let me tell you who Jesus is and what he has done. And we've got to be careful with this kind of fuzziness in our witness because yes, we want to see conversions but we don't want to see false conversions simply because of our eagerness. You with me there? And that responsibility has been given to us. So this is a great question. And guys, in our witness, we we need to be asking healthy questions. This is a healthy question. What is it that you're actually seeking? Don't settle for little. God has given us much. And I'm not expecting the people that we're talking to great theologians but i am expecting we who are witnessing to make sure that we are communicating god's truth clearly and making sure that the real issue is addressed someone coming to faith in christ is not joining a religion is it it's not saying well i think i'm going to go to church now fine come to church but that's not conversion Conversion is a radical change that takes place in the heart because of what Christ did on the cross in paying for our sins so that if we put our faith and trust in Him and embrace that sacrifice as a payment for our sin, we are regenerated, we are justified, we are completely and totally right with God. We've got to make sure that we identify the sin just as much as we identify the love and the grace that is there. All right? So, that's the first thing. We must be asking the right question. Oh, there are some ways that we, we fail to do it. If you want to jot them down. Avoiding sin, neglecting repentance, selling the gospel, um, and just you know, some faulty assumptions. Um, and the, you know, there's probably anecdotes that we could go through with those. All right, here's the second thing, though, as we need to move along. This passage is also screaming at us to consider the healthy approach. The healthy approach of how do we share the gospel? What do we say? How do we go about it? Anyone here ever struggle with that? Anyone here ever struggle with that? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have our canned approaches and stuff, but in this passage we are given three common and proper approaches to our faithful witness. Let's look at the first one. John's witness. What does John do? Biblical instruction or biblical proclamation. I, pro- I prefer you use biblical proclamation as, as uh, than instruction. Um, he just comes out and says, Behold the Lamb of God. What is he saying? He's identifying who Jesus is, and in that expression, he's identifying what Jesus will accomplish. Okay? He's proclaiming God's truth. Now, friends, one of the one of the arms of evangelism is speaking, is communicating, is explaining, it's illustrating the truth of the gospel. And it is done typically in a public setting. What I'm doing today as a pastor, preaching is publicly proclaiming the gospel to those who are present, most of which, hopefully, who are here are believers. Some of you, however, may not be. And day in and day out, when we come and we gather together to, to worship together and, and we, we sit under the preaching of God's Word, it is to hear the Gospel and God's truth pressed over and over and over again. Our mission statement says that we exist to glorify God by, what, knowing and applying and proclaiming. If you have it there in your handout, you'll notice in the little bulletin handout there, it says the word of gospel, the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ because the Word of God is the is the big set of which the gospel is the subset. Okay, It's important that we are doing that when we come. And and you ought to hold me to it. when, When you're sitting there and you're listening, I ought to be preaching the gospel. I ought to be preaching God's word. It should be what is pressed down. But it's not the only place that takes place. Public proclamation also takes place in home groups, in small groups. We have a ladies' group. We have a a marriage group. We have the home groups. Those are all contexts where whoever's leading, and sometimes those who are not leading but are part of the the conversation are proclaiming the gospel. They're they're pushing it down. They're pressing it down into the lives of the people that are there. One of the ways we evangelize is that we, we publicly proclaim it. We say it. We communicate it. We illustrate it. We explain it. Okay. And so Friends, it's really, really important that one of the things that we are going to be about is training the body of Christ, both men and women, not only to understand the Word of God, but to know how to teach it and how to explain it and how to illustrate what it is saying. Because the weight of that responsibility should not be on one person's shoulders. It is our responsibility to proclaim the Word of God. Remember the passage we started with earlier? Right at the beginning of the service, Colossians, him we proclaim, warning and teaching every man. Right, this is our responsibility. It's not just my responsibility. Now, the, the 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 context may be different, but it is one way that we share the gospel. It's one way that we proclaim that truth. Now, what's interesting here, as we as we go to this passage, um, where it says, where John says that he is. Um, He's presenting Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Is this the first time that he has said that? No. The first time he said it, was there any response recorded for us in the passage? No. Second time, yes. You say, well, what's significant about that? It's just a reminder, because of the way in which this is done, that sometimes we have to repeat what we have already said, what we've already proclaimed. And some of you have people that you're trying to share the gospel with and you say, you know, I've shared the gospel with them once. Well, keep at it. Keep doing it. One, one of the best reminders I have of that reality is my, my good friend, Jim Newcomer. His father, unbeliever, Jim, was off in school with me, preparing for ministry, and uh, his father would never go to church except for on special occasions. And he would share the gospel with him repeatedly. I remember in in... in you know, In our dorms, we'd have prayer meeting together. Every time we'd have prayer meeting, remember my dad, he doesn't know God. Uh, he doesn't understand the gospel. He's not willing to submit. Pray for him that he will get saved. Late in his life, while we were in school there, he was diagnosed with acute leukemia and was given like three or four weeks to live. Jim went home and he asked for prayers. prayer. He says, I'm going to share the gospel one more time. I've done it before plenty of times. I'm going to share the gospel now. He went home, shared the gospel. And his, not only his father was he converted but it was a conversion where he was beaming about what God had done in his heart. It wasn't just like yeah I prayed a prayer there it is. He, he, he was truly converted. Repeated message. Repeated message. Jesus Christ is the answer. He is your only hope. He is the way. Don't push him aside. And you have, you have sons and daughters, you have friends, you have family that are pushing Jesus aside and I just want to encourage you Don't give up. As we went back to the book of Jonah a few months ago, there was this little statement that Ron reminded me of last week, and that's that statement, who knows? Who knows? Who knows that this one more time is what God is going to use to break open the floodgates of the gospel in this person's life? Okay? So consider the the healthy approach. First of all, we have here... John's witness. Secondly, we have Andrew's witness. And this is the witness of personal testimony. Um, Andrew, having spent time with, with John and Jesus there, when Jesus invited them over, is now fully convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. So what does he do? Immediately, top priority, he finds Simon and tells him, we have found the Messiah, and then proceeds to bring him to Jesus. And I don't know whether he was dragging him to Jesus or what, but he just seemed really uh, that this was the most important thing of that hour. He was going to find his brother. He was going to share with him what he has found. Now, you can't help but love Andrew. Andrew um, is really a rather insignificant disciple, as the record goes. There isn't a lot said about Andrew. What is said about Andrew is this. He went and shared with his brother, Simon Peter, that Jesus is the Messiah. The next major account is that Andrew is the one that found the little boy with the fish and the loaves. Alright? The next one is that he is bringing these Greeks to Jesus before Jesus is ultimately going to be going to the cross. The theme of Andrew is that Andrew brings people to Christ. Now, he is not hugely strong in the gospels you don't see him greatly on display like you know i want to be like andrew most people say you know i want to be like paul and you know peter's this powerful character yeah but i tell you what if the church were full of andrews we would see a lot of people converted now i want us to think through this a little bit here men and women who who love God and are faithfully sharing the gospel with others are the Andrews that we're talking about here. They're not seeking public glory. They're often working behind the scenes. But their strength is their witness, their their, their trust in God as they simply open their mouths to their daily experiences and they're encouraging and they're, they're pulling and drawing people to the gospel and to Christ. It doesn't always mean that you have to be up in front of people to be sharing the gospel and to be offering a personal testimony. When I say personal testimony, I'm not here talking about, you know, well, you know, I was walking down the road one day and, you know, and this light bulb hit me and I fell off my horse and, you know, I'm not talking about the personal testimony in that, that sense. I'm talking about a personal witness with people that God impresses on your heart to share the gospel with, Okay? It's that kind of thing. Let me introduce you to a couple of Andrews from church history. The first one, uh, his name is Little Bilney. Little Bilney. Little Bilney was a monk. And he was affected by um, the writings of Martin Luther, and through those writings embraced a Reformed tradition, a Reformed theology. And um, he wanted to promote the gospel now that he had just... Embraced and he has fallen in love with and yet he he didn't see himself as a as a really gifted or prestigious or qualified person that would he would have much of an impact and god put a man by hugh latimer on his heart and hugh latimer was a priest and so uh bilney being a monk was just like okay how do i go to this priest and how do i share the gospel with him then he came up with an idea priests will listen to confession. So he went up to Hugh Latimer one day and he tugged on him and said, Hey, I have some things to confess. So he went into the confessional. They sat down, and Bilney started to share the gospel. He started to say, You know, I have recently come to find out that the gospel is not by works, but it's by faith alone. And he goes down through the gospel. As a result of that confession, Hugh Latimer. I don't know how long after, or, you know, but God used that to, to, to convert Hugh Latimer, which we talked about last week as the one person who stood in the flames talking to Ridley and say, play the man, friend, because he was a leader in England during the Reformation. But it took this little monk to share what was on his heart with another person that he thought you know, God was drawing to himself. Another one is a, a guy by the name of Edward Kimball. You probably know this story, but Edward Kimball um, had a friend that he, an acquaintance really, um, that he had met, and this guy um, worked in a shoe store. And uh, Edward Kimball was very timid. He was not the kind of person that was bold and, and you know that typically people would be attracted to necessarily because of his character. Um, he was a soft-spoken man, but God had laid on his heart to share the gospel with this shoe salesman. And the story goes that he was so consumed, all right, God, I've got to do this, but he was also so very weak in his emotional makeup. I mean, probably like all of us would be when we share the gospel. and. Got to put this on his heart, and he, he said, all right, I'm going to go. And he started going down to where that shoe store was, and because he was so consumed with thinking about what God wanted him to do, he walked right by, and, he, you know, and it's like, you know, we're always looking for excuses, right, when God has put something on our heart. And he caught himself ah, oh, I've got to go do this. And so he quickly walked into the store and just out of nowhere found him, shared the gospel, and that man he shared the gospel with was D.L. Moody, who ended up being this evangelist an incredible evangelist in the history of America, okay? Um, Moody Bible Institute is named after not Kimball, but Moody. But you see, it took a Kimball to reach a Moody. Now, part of the problem with our witness is oftentimes we don't think there's really much about us, right? Which takes us back to, it's not about what? It's not about you, and the reality is, the Christian world is not all about D.L. Moody's. The goal isn't to be the person who's out in public and, and doing that. God gifts certain people for certain eras and for certain jobs, and that's great. But the run-of-the-mill, mundane Christian is we who are here, who have some gifts and some skills, but you know, we're, we just don't, you know, we don't breathe, and all of a sudden people are falling over, you know, getting converted. I realize that's an extreme example. But we're just we're just normal people, and the thing is we know that, right? And because of that, we're fearful and we struggle. Okay. That's the kind of person God wants to use. That is an Andrew. It's you, it's me. It's a personal testimony. So, we've had public proclamation, personal testimony. Hey, wait a second, I got public proclamation there, but all right, you get that? You see that? Biblical instruction. It heard me. That's what it did. All right. If you're listening right now, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but trust me, it was good. All right. Here's the third thing, and that is Jesus, who who really gives this what we call a personal invitation. And what do we mean by personal invitation? Let's get back into the text, and let's think again what Jesus is is saying and how he's saying it and how we're connecting dots, or how I'm at least connecting the dots. Verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. Come and you will see. Now let me ask you the question, When, when Jesus asked the question, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you staying? Are they giving a Right answer, <laughs> what are you seeking? Um, what color is your bicycle? I mean, you know, it's just, it doesn't connect, all right? It was just kind of like, a, well, we want to talk further. And so Jesus is like, come and see. And there's, there, this, this invitation really is an invitation that is, that is couched with a promise. It's, it's a promise that if you come, then you will see. It's an invitation to investigate. And guys, we do this, and this is an effective way of witnessing. One of the things you can do with someone who is, uh, who is considering and wrestling with certain things is say, hey, you know, here's the Gospel of John. Why don't you begin to read it, and I would love to be able to get together with you, and we can sit down at Starbucks, and we can talk about what you've read. Investigate. Start the process. All right. Someone, it was Ron was mentioning earlier today that with his son, he... Gave him a Bible and said, read Jonah. It's the same thing. right? Investigate it. See it. Study it. Okay? There are people who are truly looking. That God has stirred something in them, but the way that they're made up, they are going to investigate. They want to study. They want to see if what is said is true. So the question now is, how do we move forward with a personal invitation? All right? One of the ways you can say is, you know, read the Gospel of John uh, or maybe there's another book in the Bible that God would impress on your heart, maybe based on that person's experience. But the Gospel of John is a great gospel for someone who is looking for evidence, right? We've already seen that. We're going to see example after example of who Jesus is and why you should trust him as Lord and Savior. Um, listening to preaching. Or maybe there's certain preachers, maybe especially with today's age, you know, you can say, hey, you know, just download this from the Internet or you know, here's a CD, or here's a um, what's it called? Um, one of these things, but I don't want to pull it out, right? Yeah, USB thing, right? Just just a a memory stick. There you go, right? Just here here's some sermons. Listen to these. I mean, there, there's there's ways. If someone is interested, they're going to be they're going to be hungry. And this is one way that that we can do that. Okay, come to a Bible study. Just sit there. You don't have to say anything. Just sit there and listen, or Ask questions in that Bible study. Join a home group. Meet over coffee. The the whole point, though, ultimately is that we get the person coming face-to-face with Jesus because they're opening up the Word of God. That's where we want them to be. Remember, it's not about us. God uses us, but the Holy Spirit works through His Word. And any way that we can say, come and, and investigate is a way that we're giving a personal invitation. So now the question is this. Let's put all these three things together, public proclamation, personal testimony, personal invitation. What should your approach be? Remember that the heading is consider the healthy approach, but which is the healthiest approach? Well, one of the first things we have to say to ourselves here is this. Are we going to make a mistake maybe in concluding which is the healthiest approach? Huh? Absolutely. And that's part of the fear, isn't it? All right. Now. Because we know that God knows that we are likely to make mistakes. You with me so far? We should then not say, well, I'm not going to do anything. We should at least say, I'm going to do this. And more than likely, you're going to use some form of all three, right? But depending on who you're with and what the issue is that they're struggling with the most, it's going to depend on where you go. But we have three models and three ways that you can be testifying here, all right? And really, it might be, hey, listen, why don't you come to our church? And you'll hear the gospel being presented. Or why don't you come to our home group? Or Bible study and do that. That's a way of invitation. But you know that in that place is going to be what? Public proclamation. The word is going to be taught. It's going to be explained. It's going to be pressed down. And they're going to have opportunity to ask questions. All right? And... The, the, the middle one there. And you're also saying, I, you know, I go here because this is what God does in me. And it was, this is where you bring your own story. I realized that Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior. when, And you can share that personal testimony. It all kind of works together. But bottom line, God is working through his word to bring life to the individual. Okay. So, again, this takes us back to 1 Peter 3.15 always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet to do it with gentleness and respect so what does it mean to be ready i just jotted some things down they're not on the overhead so just listen what does it mean to be ready spiritually it means i'm walking with god right i'm, I'm spending time in prayer I'm, I'm i'm digging in his word i my, my accounts with him are short i'm walking with him that means that there's a there's a sensitivity to what he's doing and so if, like Kimball and, and um, Bilney, God, God is squeezing our heart over a particular person, we are sensitive enough to that because we're walking with him. On a spiritual level, that's the case. To be ready also is, I think, is speaking to the intellectual. I'm growing in my understanding of the gospel and, and my ability to explain it. Okay? I, you know, don't be so fearful. I don't know exactly what to say. Okay. Learn. What to say we should all if we're we're disciples of christ we should be learning the gospel and being able to explain it more and just being here and being a part of the church family and the things that we're doing helps you to do that there are tools that will help you too but you know grow in your intellectual understanding of the gospel so that you can explain it and then there's the mental part i use the word mental simply from the perspective of going through your day looking for opportunities being mindful hey you know here's a person god's brought into my life they're sitting there for a time being going to create a conversation. We're going to see how it goes and maybe just kind of throw some seed out there and we're going to go. These things happen. So being ready has, I think, these three things in mind. I'm sure it's probably more complex than that, um, but those were some things I thought were helpful as as I pondered that. All right, so we've looked at two things. Number one, ask the right questions. Number two, consider the healthy approach. Consider the healthy approach. Here's the last one. Trust the divine process. Trust the divine process. Now, what we're going to see as we kind of do one redo through the whole passage again, is we're going to see God at work in the individuals that are um, identified in this passage. This is really, really important because we we live in an immediate satisfaction culture, which means that that mentality and that thinking can even uh, infect and affect how we think about evangelism. I share the gospel. I wanted an answer now. Give it to me now. You know, I'll take the value gospel too, if that comes with it. All right? I want it now. You didn't get that one. Okay. All right. All right. You know, we just want this immediate results. But, guys, that's not typically how it works. And probably for you, it didn't happen just at a snap of a finger, in the sense that that the gospel, you know, things started to open up to you, began to see certain things. And regeneration may have taken place in your heart, but you. We're connecting all the dots right away. And I think we we need to recognize that there is a divine process going on here that we need to be patient with. That's the point, okay? So there's progression here. And and think of all these things and keep in mind the the seed form of what we're talking about here, okay? Notice verse 37. The, The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Here's the first one, following Jesus. Someone says, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay, Good. That can mean a lot of different things. It, I mean, it could mean that, you know, you're you just kind of like, well, Jesus is my guy. It could mean, like, you know, I've studied the Old Testament and New Testament and recognized that Jesus is the suffering servant now proclaimed. And, you know, it could mean different levels of maturity. And here we have someone, two guys, two disciples that were following John the Baptist who are now, Following Jesus, the Messiah, they really don't know the big picture. They just know this is the Messiah. At least that's what their rabbi has been telling them and they're following. A new believer is a follower of Christ, but may not have all the reservoir of knowledge to go with that. Secondly, um, uh, I, I would say this also, though. In following Jesus, there is a shifting of allegiances. That was one of the things that took place there. So there certainly is a shifting going on, right? second thing is this. There's this learning from Jesus. Notice verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? The the point here is that he's Rabbi. They're saying, You are Rabbi. You are teacher. And therefore, you are going to be teaching us. And ultimately, where did they go? They went with him. And can you imagine what it would have been like to spend an evening with Jesus? Uh, John doesn't record it. John, I wish you would have recorded it, all right? But he doesn't. But can you imagine the kind of questions that we're asked? Jesus wants to teach us. And he has given us his word. He's given us the Holy Spirit so that we can understand his word. So it's not simply understanding his word in an academic way. You know, there are 66 books in the Bible. And, you know, the absolute center of the Bible is, that's academically nice, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about learning from Him that the Word of God would be alive and that you'd be breathing it in. And what happens is that natural man doesn't understand that. We need the Holy Spirit to make His Word alive. So Jesus has given us His Word And for us to know him and to learn from him means what? That we need to be studying it. Now listen, this is not a Sunday school statement. Disciples of Jesus to learn from Jesus can only learn from Jesus if we are in his word. So don't just let that kind of blow by and say, yeah, well, that's just what they say in church. That's just, that's the lifeblood of of where our understanding and awareness of who Christ is comes from, right? It is through His Word. And He teaches us the Gospel, who He is, what He's done, what it means to trust Him. It teaches us how to live. I'm just giving summary statements here of, of the impact of the Word of God. Here's the, the third thing that, that we find as part of the process. It's the word abiding in Jesus. Look, if you would please, at verse 39. He, that's Jesus, said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was the ninth hour. You say, well, how does that connect with this word abide? Now remember, John is, is likely, and I believe, the second disciple. And he's telling us what he and Andrew were privileged to do. It was the tenth hour, which means, I believe, four o'clock in the evening, based on the Jewish system of the day, which... Began at dawn. So 10 hours would mean around 4 o'clock. Okay? Um, and Jesus then un- unve- uh, invited them to spend the evening with him. This word stayed is the Greek word meno, which means to abide. So not only did they just kind of come over and you know, have tea, um, they were abiding. Now this, this expression abide is an expression that is used in the Gospel of John in significant ways. Turn to chapter 15, if you would, please. John chapter 15. And just notice a couple of verses there. John chapter 15, verse 4. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Go down to verse... um, Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Same word. It describes something that is connected, that is intimate, that is personal. So when it says that they were abiding with him, were staying with him, it's not just kind of like, oh, they hung out. There was something far more significant going on. I think that's why you know, I, I did kind of think through, you know, what, what was actually going on during that time? What was Jesus teaching them? What questions were asked that he explained? What struggles did Andrew and, and John have that they brought to Jesus and he gave some, some perspective to? And, and here they are sitting across from the Messiah. What was going on in their heart? At what point in time did Andrew think to himself, I've got to find Peter. I've got to tell my brother. I've got to tell him we found the Messiah. I mean, what's going on there? They're abiding. Now, what does it mean to abide? And I think the, the best way that we can say um, abiding takes place in us is, is when we're talking, we're communing, we're listening, we're questioning, we're pondering the things of God. We might call this our devotional life. Um, it would be times of prayer, times of interacting with the Word of God, um, times of those you know we're, we're, we've we've prayed, we've read, and we're just we're wrestling or we're praising or we're walking with God. It's that kind of idea, this 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 abiding with Him. It's also, I think, an attitude that we take throughout the day. Okay, we're, we're abiding. We're, we're driving down the road, and that person cuts us off. Most of us are not abiding at that point in time. We're done abiding, and we're doing our own thing. But it's, it's, our, it's our desire to abide that brings us back to where we need to be, to recognize that that was not the best thing for us to do. Okay. Um, so there, there's this abiding that's taking place. And remember, we're talking about these in very seed form in this text, but there's certainly a, a picture of what is yet to come and themes that Jesus is going to be talking about that we need to recognize are part of this divine process. And the last one is this changed by Jesus. I, I, think, I think this passage ultimately is laying the foundation so that we can get to Peter. It's introducing him. He's a key player in this gospel. He's a key player of the disciples. And we're getting some picture of who he is. And what's here, what is said here is beautiful. Verse 40 one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. Wow. There was a huge change that right away Jesus was talking about. Changing your name. Now, as I mentioned, this is probably the focal point of the text, ultimately, that that Jesus is teaching that he has significant plans for Peter, that his teaching, his preaching would be a rock on which the church would start building. When we come to Jesus, though, when we come to Jesus, we see him as the Lamb of God, as our teacher, our rabbi, so to speak, as our Lord. When we come to Jesus, he sees us in terms of, of what his gospel is doing in us and will do in us. Get that? He knows the effect of his gospel on the life of those that he is drawing to himself. He looks at, he looks at Simon he says, you're not Simon, you're Peter. He looks at us and he says, you're not Ron, you're not Leonid, go down the list. You are that person I am making you. All right. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What He has begun, He is still going to do. This is discipleship. Get this. Discipleship begins at spiritual birth and continues on. It's not something that happens a few years after conversion. I think now... I want to be a disciple. You've waited too long. You are a disciple. You're a child of God. You are a disciple. These things are taking place in you, right? You're following Jesus. You're learning from him. You're learning to abide in him. You're you're recognizing the changes that are there. This is all part of this discipleship process. So, So this conversion, this evangelism has as its goal the making of disciples. Does that sound familiar to you from somewhere in Scripture? Matthew 28... Eight, oh, yeah. yeah, 28, 19 and 20, right? Making disciples. God's called us to do that. He's called us to present people mature in Christ. That means that we're taking them through this process, but it's God that is maturing them. What we have here with the disciples, if you go to the other Gospels, it's like the disciples saying, yeah, I'm following Jesus, but I have no idea what I'm doing, right? They're constantly asking questions, like what in the world is going on here? What, who, you know, but we're hearing. John's gospel, he lays it out right from the start. Boom. They're following, they're abiding, they're being taught. and there's some changes that are taking place in their lives. Now guys, God is calling us to be faithful witnesses. And there are some ways in which we can go about it. and the, the better we are at being acquainted with those and being comfortable with those and ready with those, it's going to mean the more effective that we are going to be. Don't fear that God is somehow standing up there saying, well, okay, you got a, you got a 6 out of 10 on that one. you got a, you know. We all struggle with that. Just, Lord, give me strength. Here's, here's one way I can do it. Here's another way I can do it. Here's another way. But the, the core here is that, that I'm asking the right question so that I can make sure that, that this conversion that is taking place is a true conversion. It's not a false conversion. It's not an empty conversion. It's not just simply going through a prayer so I can get you off my back or, or that I can just have this thing that comes with conversion. It is truly coming face to face with Jesus as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, as the Savior of mankind because we are dead in our sins and we need him. It's only through him that we can truly be saved. Friends, we we have the great privilege of giving that message and seeing the steady growth take place in God's people throughout their lives. Lord, help us today to celebrate the gospel, to celebrate, Lord, how you even use us in sharing the gospel. And Lord, I think for most of us, it is a very daunting thing open our mouths and to testify I think most of us would be terrified to be a Kimball to walk into someone's place of business and just to walk right up to them and just to start sharing the gospel with them how out of sorts that would seem in our culture how out of sorts that would even seem within the church and yet Lord there are times when you call us to such bold and drastic measures Lord, help us to consider before you the effectiveness of our evangelistic witness. You're calling us, Lord, to evangelize as a church. You're calling us as individuals to do that, Lord. You're you're, you're talking about me. You're talking about everyone who is here, Lord. But Lord, you also may be talking this morning to some whom evangelism is not their calling because they are the ones that truly need the gospel for salvation. And I ask, Lord, that if there's anyone here today that is wrestling with that, Lord, that is seeking because you've put some things in their heart, Lord, that they would begin to grasp a hold of your gospel and, and come, Lord, by faith and trust you as Lord and Savior. You are awesome. You are worthy to be praised. Lord, have your will with us now. And, Lord, especially now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, reminding us, Lord, of what took place on the cross, of your sacrifice for us, Lord, and the shedding of your blood. Uh, Lord, would you be glorified now in your precious name.